Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. It's that time of the year, and we're recording this on January 3rd, 2023, when we look towards the future to see what kind of energy stories and environmental stories we're likely to be covering this year. And so I'm going to be joined by Tim Gray, who's the Executive Director of Environmental Defense Canada, to talk about 12 predictions that he's made. So welcome to the interview, Tim. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, it's almost like a it's a tradition in the media, right? When coming up to January 1, you look back on the year that's passed, uh, you know, what were the notable stories? And then early in 2023, you look forward to what's coming. And given where we're at in the energy transition and the uh, evolution of policy at both the provincial and federal level, there's a lot to talk about. And you've narrowed it down to 12. And I want to go through each one of the 12. Uh, So let's start with number one. Canada will drive towards an equitable EV future. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because, of course, EVs are really ready for prime time now. I mean, I think a lot of the issues that people have had concerns about in terms of uh, reliability, range, um, all those things uh, have kind of been brushed aside. More and more people are trying them. And then once they have one, they're like, oh, I don't want anything else. So, but the problem that we're all facing, or many of us, I guess if you live in BC or or Quebec, this isn't the case, but for the rest of us, try and get one. (laughs) The the waiting lists uh, are years long in some cases. I just got a couple of emails from folks recently saying that their order had been so backlogged that finally the dealer just canceled it, saying there was no chance they were ever going to get one in the foreseeable future. So... um, you know, we got to address this because, uh, you know, a key aspect of the energy transition in, in Canada and around the world is access to electric transportation. And unfortunately, uh, public transit being the way that it is in most of the country, a lot of people are stuck in cars, so they need electric vehicles. So I think what you're going to see is the uh, implementation of the clean car standard by the federal government. Finally, it's been a long time coming. And that means that uh, the car companies will either have to sell electric vehicles to the consumers who want them, or they'll have to pay a significant fine for not doing so. And uh, that's really, really key now, because um, as you uh, probably are aware, and maybe a lot of other people probably wouldn't be, but um, a lot of the manufacturers are producing uh, electric vehicles only in the numbers to give them kind of a halo effect. They're really, really trying to drive consumers mainly to buy large trucks and sport utility vehicles because that's where the the big profits are. And we really need them to switch gears and uh, gear up their um, manufacturing of electric vehicles in quantity, um, both across models, but also in numbers. Now, that supply of electric vehicles, as you mentioned, is a problem, but it doesn't look like we're going to make much progress over the next, I don't know, two, three years. I mean, this is a... 
I just did an interview with uh, with uh, an engineer who had done the, the emissions numbers around transportation, and the biggest impediment to achieving Canada's emissions numbers are supply of electric vehicles. I mean, we it's not just the plants. I mean, you have to build plants or convert plants. We don't have enough of those yet, and those don't appear overnight. They take so at least several years to build. And then on top of that, we have a supply chain issue. So around electric vehicles, we can look at um, batteries. And we have critical critical minerals in Canada, but we don't have the processing and refining to turn those minerals into battery metals. 80% of that is in China. So if you if you mine some lithium here in Canada, you almost have to send it to, to China and then bring it back to build to build batteries. So what I know the government is going to is putting pressure on the manufacturers, but in your opinion, can they scale up their manufacturing, scale up their supply chains in, you know, in time to meet the, the zero emission vehicle mandate that the government is putting in place? Yeah, I think they can. I mean, for two reasons. One is that some of the supply chain issues, especially around chips, which, of course, uh, impact um, uh, internal combustion engine vehicle manufacturing and electric cars as well, because they, they're both largely driven by computers. Those have been clearing up. In fact, there's chip surpluses in a, in a bunch of markets now. Um, but more broadly, in terms of converting ICE manufacturing into EVs, yes, that will take time. Um, but part of this is just being competitive. Uh, a lot of US states, of course, do not have um, electric vehicle um, standards. A bunch do, California and I think 14 other states. So I think what this will do for Canadians and our emissions here, but also uh, cost of living and, and long-term expenses related to owning a car is make more of those cars uh, come to, to uh, Canadian provinces that don't have mandates right now. <clears throat> because uh, there's no downside for say GM or Ford uh, to make those uh, electric vehicles that they are producing available in Ontario rather than some US state where there's no uh, mandate to do so and therefore no, pe no penalty for not doing so. So I think you'll see a shift in the market and uh, with more demand and more consumers being confident they'll get their electric vehicles, um, I think that you'll continue to see more investment by some of the big auto manufacturers. Some will drag their heels for sure, but I think you can expect some of those to go the way of the dodo over the long term um, because uh, of resistance to electrification. Well, let's talk about your second prediction, which is that financial institutions will be forced to better align finance with climate action. We've seen a lot of criticism in the last few years of Canadian banks, which talk a good game, but in fact are still investing heavily in oil and gas infrastructure and operations, even some in coal outside of, of Canada. Uh, what is going to make those banks change their policies and change their practices? Uh, regulation. It's market failure right now. We need money to be going into the energy transition. And unfortunately, uh, too much of it is still going into the fossil fuel economy. Um, you know, the first part of that is, is transparency around risk. Um, you know, there really needs to be better disclosure around what our banks and other financial federally, re federally regulated financial institutions are doing around long-term risk and where their money is going. And uh, you know, then stage two is to actually uh, get them to a point where they're um, you know, addressing that risk in a meaningful way so that they have action plans to move their money away from things that are causing climate change to those that are helping to solve it. But it is gonna take regulation and the conversation is just getting underway. 
it was really interesting bill that uh, you know went through the Senate um, that was around climate disclosure that I think was quite well written um, and the exercise in that um, you know, going through that um, you know having the conversations having the hearings I think was very valuable there's going to be increasing pressure for uh, the house to pick up <clears throat> bill that bill or bill like it and for the government to prioritize this going forward so that we can see the kind of uh, financial transition that we're seeing in other sectors. Are we seeing any pressure from uh, shareholders, uh, particularly maybe the activist shareholders, as well as environmental groups like yours, and, and even consumers, to pressure Canadian banks to change their their practices here. Uh, I mean, they they do talk a good game. You hear them all the time talking about climate change and a green future and and all of that. Uh, but money talks, and and so what what it does. Yeah, I mean, you know, the there is a real uh, you know talking in both sides of your mouth kind of thing going on with Canadian financial institutions. You know, some of our banks are the, are the most heavily uh, invested in fossil fuels um, and you know they're big players even on a global scale um, so they're always looking to game any of the co commitments that are made around net zero to you know put that transition off as far as possible um, I think increasingly though as you were mentioning both uh, retail customers but also big uh, institutional clients are looking for something else I think that pressure will grow but I think the speed at which the transition needs to occur means that Government's going to have to step in and and make sure that 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 transition, especially around um, the transparency around the risk to the banks themselves and to their client base, is being properly disclosed. So I think you'll see a lot more uh, in that direction, both regulatorily, but also from those uh, activist shareholders you're mentioning. Okay, the the third prediction of yours is that Canada will proceed with a just transition and to ensure preparedness for a zero a zero carbon future. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, this is something that's really critical, I think, to get right. Um, Canada has a, a crappy history on these kind of issues. You know, we're kind of known for denying that we have like uh, some kind of collapse impending in a particular resource area right up until literally the hour before it finally collapses. And then we can, you know, tell people, uh, well, you know, go learn Microsoft Word and collect uh, you know, UI or EI for six months and then you're on your own. Um, I think, you know, to bring people along with the energy transition, we're going to need to do better than we did for cod and trees. Uh, we need to do something better here so that people can actually plan their future. And I think it's really uh, important, uh, both for the individuals involved, so that people uh, know that they have a, a viable economic future for themselves that are employed in these industries. But it's also incredibly important politically um, to create the, uh, the political buy-in for people not to resist the idea that we need to end fossil fuel extraction. So I think there's a lot more of a conversation about this than there was any time in the past around other resource issues that I've been involved in. And that gives me some hope that government is more serious about it this time. Now we saw last uh, October, uh, Finance Minister Christopher Freeland went to Edmonton and she uh, gave a speech in which she talked about real muscular industrial policy, quote, unquote. And your 
blog post mentions industrial policy. And full disclosure for viewers, I was hired as a contract writer to help uh, to lead the team that wrote the Alberta Federation of Labor's recent uh, economic policy strategy report, which used industrial policy quite heavily. But it seems to me that if uh, we're going to move things along, that modern industrial policy has to be at the core of the federal government's planning or of its economic policy. And I don't see that. And I certainly don't see it at the provincial level. What are your thoughts? Well, they've been talking about this. And as you mentioned, the finance minister you know, has given a couple of good speeches about this. Um, and you know, I think the, the proof still is in the pudding about whether or not that's actually going to emerge out of some of these conversations that the federal government is having with the provinces. But clearly it's needed. It's the backbone of any kind of just transition is to have a new place for people to be going, new places for investment to flow, new places for workers, and to have that be in sectors that are, are part of the clean energy future. So um, it's something that's a priority for us. I know that uh, a bunch of the organizations that we work with, whether that be labor or industry, you know, shares that view. And uh, I think that there's going to be a, a growing push to prioritize some of the key industries that can be winners in this new space uh, on a regional basis and uh, put the, the mechanisms, regulations, policies in place that are going to allow them to succeed. Right, fair enough. Um... One of the things about industrial policy is there's a big focus on, uh, first of all, strategy. So you come up with a strategy to build an industrial cluster. And this becomes really important, because, and I'll be arguing this, uh, viewers and listeners, uh, in, in 2023 in some columns and essays that I've got planned. But the 2022 seems to have been the year that the combination of the accelerating energy transition, the economic shock that was created with the COVID-19 pandemic, and then the energy shock that was felt when Russia invaded Ukraine in February of, of last year, all of those combined uh, triggered essentially what an economic transformation. Uh, the uh, Europe, in particular the United States with the US Infl Inflation Reduction Act, have decided that they now need its full steam ahead to build the industry that supports clean energy. We're talking EV plants, battery plants, wind turbine plants, solar panel plants, on and on and on. And this seems to be the, the focus for the next, at least for the rest of this decade, is to get in, build in these industrial clusters, the supply chains that they require so that North America can compete with Europe. North America can compete with with Asia Pacific. And it seems like Canada, you know, the Americans, now that they've got wrapped their head around it, are going gangbusters. Uh, we're not. We're still, we're still doing a lot of talking and a lot of hand wringing and trying to figure out what this is all about. Would you agree or disagree? I agree. And I think that's caught uh, Canadian governments off guard. Um, you know, an example here in Ontario, uh, you know, the Ontario government was elected in 2018. And, you know, one of their kind of slogans was like, you know, kill the electric vehicle, right? We hate it. You know, they took the charging stations for electric vehicles out of the go stations and got rid of the, you know, all of the, the incentives and infrastructure and stuff. And, uh, you know, but you know, pretty soon came around to the idea, oh, that means we don't get to have a car industry in Ontario anymore then. Maybe we have to stop hating electric vehicles. Um, you know, maybe that's not going to be a good thing for us or for our future electability. 
So I, I think they've been kind of uh, you know dragged into this kicking and screaming in a lot of cases, and in other case, in other cases where they're not so oppositional to the idea, like at the federal government level, I don't really think that there's been enough attention put into uh, doing the things we were talking about before, which is what are appropriate strategies for different provinces and what is the role of various levels of government to make this happen, um, to enable investment, you know, to prove out the resource, for example, so that uh, someone else who has private capital can bring uh, bring that to bear and, and you know, produce new product or new, new energy sources and bring them to market. Um, and uh, I, I think that Canada has been behind and I think taken by surprise by the US, you know, like given how split their uh, or how much turmoil their government's been. I don't think really anyone was expecting that, you know, Joe Biden and the, and the Democrats were going to be able to land anything. Um, and then suddenly it's here. And as you're saying, it's going like gangbusters and we're kind of being left behind. And uh, that that obviously is dangerous for us. Right. That's another conversation that we have to have at the national level, because if governments were caught by surprise, I think Canadians still don't even understand. We're not even having the conversation. I think the general public doesn't understand what's at stake and is not involved in this conversation in a big way at all. It's not on the list of, of priority. You know, you see, uh, you know, polling, for instance, uh, what are your top, you know, five or, or 10 issues? And this isn't even on on the list. So we've got a long, a long way to, to go on this, but I don't want to, I want to want to beat this horse too badly. So let's move on to number four. And speaking of Ontario, uh, your fourth prediction is that Ontario will realize the mistake of paving over the green belt and critical ecosystems. I I hope that's true. I'm not sure that Doug Ford is the man to have a, a road to Damascus experience on this issue. We'll see. He's had a couple before. Um... You know, the first uh, try they had at the, the green belt with legislation, they ended up backing down on it. They didn't this time. They backed it down on the on the labor legislation, you know, the use of the notwithstanding clause. They passed a bill. And then a week later, once it became clear that the whole province is going to shut down, they decided it was maybe not such a great idea. Um, so it is possible. I, I think that um, the the scale of the revulsion to what they've done here uh, is so widespread, so deep, and so across uh, voting intention that that's going to become very, very clear to them. And uh, the fact that it, the resistance isn't going to go away and is going to build, um, I think, will really lead to a conversation within the government caucus about uh, revisiting uh, some of these decisions. Well, let's hope that your optimism uh, bears out in 2023. But I want to get on to number five, because this is one that I'm, I again, in North America, we're not picking up on this. In Canada, we're not picking up on it. And that's the that the conflict in, in Europe with Russia invading Ukraine has really sped up the green transition. And the response in Canada uh, from the oil and gas industry has been, you know, these frantic demands to approve new infrastructure, expand production and you know in LNG and and oil oil exports, uh, instead of understanding that you know in May the uh, European Commission passed the uh, RE uh, Europe, uh, sorry, uh, Repower EU is the name of the strategy, and the idea is to accelerate the electrification of of Europe. And also, of course, the acceleration of, of producing low carbon fuels like hydrogen and sustainable aviation fuel. So the actual the uh, increase in demand for 
non-Russian supplies of oil and gas, it may be strong for five years, but it is not going to be strong past, say, 2030. Uh, and and I don't think we've we've quite realized that fact yet. I don't think so at all. In fact, the media was dominated, uh, as you've mentioned, by oil and gas industry trying to take advantage of the the you know very real uh, you know energy crisis that was pending in Europe as a result of the Russian invasion, to try and use that as an argument why we should um, increase export of fossil fuels. But of course, it's just kind of silly. I mean, the whole idea that you're going to deliver um, natural gas pipelines across the country, build terminals, and send them to Europe in an emergency. It's just not possible, right? Physically not possible to do that. And uh, in the very short to medium term, the uh, gearing up of the energy transition that's now underway in Europe as a response to this, to get off the dependence on, on Russian fossil fuels is huge. I just read a really interesting stat the other day. By 2024, uh, Germany, just Germany alone, is gonna be installing 500,000 air source heat pumps a year. So, you know, if you look at, you know, we're about 47% of the German population. So if we were doing the same, the same kind of percentage amount, that would be 250,000 air source heat pumps a year going in across Canada. I don't know what we're at, but I bet it's like 2,500. So <laughs> like, no, I actually, I actually so have far that, behind. <laughs> Tim, I actually have that number. Uh, mm -hmm. The interview that I did earlier today, mm -hmm. it's 20,000 a year. And uh, the calculation of Brian Livingston, the author of the study, was that to meet Canada's uh, emissions targets for buildings, we would have to do between now and 2030, 600,000 heat pumps per year. Right. That sounds about right, because we've been so far behind. And so we're about an order of magnitude behind where uh, just Germany alone is planning to go on this issue. So and then there's all the other initiatives that you mentioned. So Germany really is pivoting. Europe more broadly is pivoting. And I think that uh, you know we, we really are uh, dreaming if we are going to look to produce more fossil fuels to uh, fill a declining demand. Well, let's talk about prediction number six. Canada will proceed with a full environmental assessment of proposed Highway 413. Maybe you could give us a little bit of background for our non-Ontario viewers and listeners on, on the project and what Canada plans to do. Yeah, this is a highway that um, goes north of, uh, north of the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area, um, and starts over in Milton, arcs around Brampton and goes over and meets the 400. It's about 60 kilometers long. New mega 400 series highway goes through the green belt farmland and it really is a, a signature example of what's wrong with uh, planning in southern Ontario under the current government sprawl and highways uh, instead of compact sustainable development in fact the city of Brampton for that same uh, place where the highway would be built has a competing proposal of an urban boulevard with transit ways buildings with retail at grade um, apartments and condos above it, street uh, street cafes, etc. So an urban space, and instead the province is saying, nope, you know, we're going to build you a, a 1950s four-lane highway in the middle of a cornfield and you, and, and surrounded by uh, big box stores and sprawl. So it has been designated for uh, an individual um, impact assessment by the federal government. The, we're still waiting for the province, uh, almost two years later, to submit their project proposal because it's so deficient in so many areas of federal jurisdiction. I think it's gonna to go to a full panel review and that'll really allow a broader conversation, not just for Ontario, but for the country as a whole about why in 2023 now, 
the idea of building new super highways instead of public transit and denser, smarter cities is insane. And uh, it's going to be a really interesting conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that because uh, my take on this is that while in the short term, we may see an increase or we, we won't see a decrease in the number of uh, vehicles as we switch from internal combustion engine to electric, there's enough technology coming down the road. And I'm thinking like autonomous robo taxis and, and other kinds of uh, public transit like shuttles and so on that we can actually make the uh, transport, transportation system work far more efficiently to move more people with fewer vehicles and so that we don't need this continued construction of, of highways. And the, tech, the technology may not be there you know, today to do that, but it will certainly, by the time this Highway 413 might be built, would be there. And so we need to be looking ahead rather than always looking uh, behind us for our, our models around these kind of projects. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking at least 10 years before the shovels would be in the ground in this project. It's about 10 billion if it went ahead, um, 85 stream crossings, like you, you name it, it's a bad idea. And uh, if any of the things that you're talking about in terms of uh, application of AI to transportation and the move from cars to be something that's indiv are individually owned by people to something that's collective, that's, you're kind of running around the landscape, picking people up in groups or in individually, the number of vehicles on the road and the level of congestion could dramatically drop. And what do you need all these huge highways for if you cut the number of vehicles in half? So uh, it's really high risk, high cost, and very, very destructive. I'd agree. And, and just to tie a bow around this part of our conversation, Tim, uh, the important thing is that some of this you can strategize around. You know, now is the time, we talked about industrial strategy. Well, now is the time, you know, where we should be sitting down as a country and as individual provinces and regions to have these kinds of what's coming and how might that in, influence the the projects that we're contemplating to improve transportation and, and so on. And we just aren't having the conversation. And this not having the conversation seems to be, a, 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 I don't know if it's a uniquely Canadian thing, but goodness gracious, I can think of a dozen uh, pro, uh, sectors like electricity where we need to have a conversation and we're not at all. So um, maybe the environmental assessment process on this project will open up some of that conversation in Southern Ontario. Well, let's go on to, to uh, number, prediction number seven. The federal clean electricity standard will force Ontario to stop building more gas plants. And this is, it's nuts. Anybody increasing this, increasing natural gas power generation at a time when wind and solar are uh, probably half of the levelized cost of, of energy of, the, of gas doesn't strike me as being smart uh, environmentally or economically. No, it makes very little sense. Um, you know, we had really great uptake on wind and solar. And of course, Alberta has had some fantastic results uh, with their open electricity market doing uh, auctions and getting wind prices that are you know, just amazing. Um, we could be doing the same thing here. Um, we have massive amounts of rooftop space um, throughout all of the cities of Southern Ontario for solar. Um, help reduce either companies or individuals' uh, electricity costs. Uh, we really should be thinking about investing in a smarter grid. We've got electric vehicles coming on for, for storage opportunities, especially in densely populated places like Southern Ontario. Um, there's lots of things we could be doing other than locking in gas plants. I mean, the, the 
the level of uh, ideological commitment to burning fossil fuels from this government is, is truly astounding. I mean, they're actually right now contemplating that if the federal uh, emission standards cause uh, those plants to be shut down by 2035, that they will lock into contracts for Ontario ratepayers to continue to pay those gas plants as if they were still producing electricity, even if they're not operating. So it's just really a massive abdication of responsibility to the public, both on the pollution side, but also in the financial accountability and, and cost side. Um, there, you know, we could have renewable energy much cheaper than we can get this gas stuff. I interview Professor Mark Winfield of York University a, a lot uh, on this particular issue. And a point that he makes over and over again is in Ontario, there's no energy planning. That just it, it just is not within the government. Uh, there's no uh, regulator. The uh, Ford government uh, disbanded the regulator back, I think it was 2019. And there's no place to have these kinds of conversations and to to do to do strategy and and forward looking planning around around energy. And and the consequence of that is that Ontario, Canada's largest province and its industrial heartland, uh, there's a very exist real existential threat here as the world begins to do this industrial transformation that I've been been talking about. And Ontario just doesn't seem, it, you know, it's a, it's a freight train coming and Ontario is either ignoring it or thinks it's something else. Yeah, I mean, the, the only kind of planning that they're doing is recognizing that there's going to be an increase in the need for electricity because of the move to things like air source heat pumps and EVs and other things we we're talking about. But instead of thinking, okay, well, what, how does this create a huge opportunity for the industrial heartland of Ontario? Um, and how could we be producing, uh, you know, smart grid, smart appliances? How could we uh, bring on renewable energy? No, we're just going to like ramp up a whole bunch of, of gas plants and uh, hand out massive subsidies for, for new uh, nuclear capacity, which we know is super expensive. And because once you start building one, once you have cost overruns or once it's operating and those pressure tubes, you know, they find, you know, you x-ray them and find them, they've got a couple of cracks in them. You're not going to not maintain them. So we're then all on the hook again as the public to um, fork out the money to keep these things safe. So it's, uh, it's not smart, um, it's ideologically driven in my mind and um, really uh, is something that needs to change. And I think the federal government really needs to be on top of this with their clean electricity standard and not allow the province to get away with what they're planning on gas. Well, let's move on to prediction number eight. Indig indigenous groups will stand up against toxic tailings, and I assume that's the oil sands, uh, and the line five pipeline. Uh, what were you thinking of with this prediction? Yeah, it's been interesting over the last year or so, just the resurgence in um, Indigenous opposition to the, the plans the federal government were floating about dumping tailings into the Athabasca River. I really think that, you know, these have been longstanding concerns around health impacts, uh, wildlife impacts, etc. for the folks who live downstream directly, but also the broader Indigenous community, um, both on the Athabasca and Alberta, but all the way downstream into the in Northwest Territories, etc. So um, I think that the organization around that is really growing and uh, the demand there is going to be for um, something to be done that actually cleans them up rather than uh, the idea that somehow we can just uh, you know, skim off the water and dump it into the Athabasca River. So that's one. And then the other of course is um, 
in growing indigenous opposition to the idea that we should be putting uh, oil pipelines on, on the bottom of uh, the Straits of Mackinac uh, with the possibility of catastrophic rupture and the damage to uh, the Great Lakes, but also more directly within uh, indigenous communities along the lines uh, themselves on land, um, just a rejection of the idea that we should be building in this day and age more dangerous fossil fuel pipelines, which have a propensity to leak and cause all kinds of mayhem. Well, let's talk about prediction number nine, because this one is of great interest to me, and that is that Canada will eliminate subsidies for the fossil fuel industry. And I know that the government has said that they will do that. The problem is that the Oil Sands Pathways Alliance is asking the various levels of government, but primarily Canada, for $50 billion to build carbon capture utilization and storage to decarbonize the oil sands. Never mind conventional production, never mind uh, that's 60% of Canada's oil production, but then there's a lot, there's another 40% that would have to be decarbonized and presumably federal money spent on that. Well, if you're giving money to, to oil companies to build infrastructure, that's a subsidy. And how they square eliminating public subsidies for oil and gas while they're giving them subsidies for, to decarbonize oil and gas. I can't square that circle. Yeah, I mean, either. I mean, I think, you know, it's one of the things that I think you're starting to see some of the tension emerge around this. Um, I think the whole Pathways Alliance was a pivot away from the approach that, it, that had been taken by uh, CAP for years, which was very, very adversarial with the federal government. So instead, they've come up with this kind of, oh, yes, we'd love to help you meet your net zero commitments, but, you know, it's going to take you paying for it public because, you know, we couldn't possibly afford to do it ourselves. But I think um, the federal government and the public more generally are kind of wise to this. And uh, I think the, you know, direct cash handouts for this stuff are going to be very, very hard to secure as they should be. Um, you know, if the, the oil sands industry wants to survive in a world of declining demand when they're a high cost producer, but they're making lots of money currently, then they're going to have to pay for this stuff um, because we really need to be spending the money on the energy transition, not propping up uh, something that absolutely has to go away over time. So I just don't think you're going to see more of that, the cash. Um, the tax treatment, you know, the tax uh, subsidies that they're getting right now, um, those are a real problem and something we're going to continue to work on. But it is a commitment that government has made um, you know, to the rest of the world to address these subsidies. We're really happy to see them and the spending of um, Export Development Canada money on fossil fuels outside of the country. Um, the speed at which that happened, uh, even though we've been pushing for it a long time, like it was done and it was, you know, it was over, that was really encouraging. And we're hoping to see the, a, sem a similar level of action on commitments that are being made domestically. Well, I know you're in, uh, involved in this issue, so I'm going to float a, a hypothesis here. It's that the federal government will not end its subsidies to the oil sands for the Pathways Alliance uh, CCUS project. And the reason is because the prime minister and the government have painted themselves into a corner. The, the prime minister announced at COP26, so just over you know, about 14 months ago, that there would be an immediate quote unquote, cap on oil and gas emissions. That hasn't happened yet, but there's a lot of expectation now that, the, that it will. And the industry isn't willing 
the this is a very complex technical issue. It requires a lot of capital to do it, and the industry doesn't want to pay for it. And I think the pressure, the political pressure on the federal government is going to be so great that in order to relieve it, they're simply going to throw buckets of cash at the oil and gas industry to make this problem go away. Why do I think that? Because they've done it many times in the past with different industries, including oil and gas. I hope you're wrong. And I think what's different now is that this clearly is an industry that is going to have to get smaller on a global scale. And that no matter how you cut it, um, the oil sands are uh, you know, high cost, high emission uh, industry. And uh, I'm hoping that people within the federal government recognize that the billions that, uh, you know, was it the 50 billion you were saying that the industry wants, that if we spent that on industries that actually could be employing more people in the future, producing cleaner energy, um, be part of an industrial strategy that we were talking about earlier for Canada, that there would be a much, much better use of public money, in particular for the people uh, of Alberta who are you know, much more dependent on the oil industry than people in the other parts of the country, because a future with a declining oil industry is going to be hardest on those areas and something else needs to be built. So I'm really hopeful that they're not going to be bamboozled into handing out our cash when the oil industry itself should spend it if it wants to survive. Well, I'm afraid I'm I'm still not very very optimistic, and uh, we will see what happens. Uh, this is an issue that Energy Media will be reporting about extensively in 2023. So, folks, you can watch our interviews and my columns for more information as uh, as we go along. So, well, let's talk about prediction number ten. Canada will extend its expand its ban on harmful single use plastics, beginning to invest in reuse services and systems. So we live in a, on Vancouver Island in a city of about 10 or 15,000. There's a catchment area, about 50,000. And this is a big issue here. Uh, yes, they collect the recycling, but it has to go someplace else to be recycled. And it's very inefficient and there's no capital available to create a better system. And I assume that this applies all over Canada. It's true. I mean, only about 9% of our plastics actually get recycled. The rest of them end up in the environment in some way, their landfill or being burned or ending up in Southeast Asia and then in the ocean. Um, so it's a really huge problem. Um, it's also a domestic problem in terms of pollution. Uh, and there's huge opportunities here, I think, both politically and environmentally and economically. Um, the more that you circularize the economy, um, so you know, have things that are produced used, collected, washed, reused, the more people it takes to do that, the more equipment it takes to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, the more money that, that stays within the economy uh, when that happens. So I think as well that it's a political opportunity because the, uh, the public is broadly on side with glass plastics. Um, we're buried in the stuff. We know the industry has a, a plan for massively increasing the amount of plastics that it produces as a way to compensate for, compensate for declining demand for fossil fuels from transportation fuels going down. We don't all wanna be buried in it. We can't have our planet buried in it. So some of them that can't be recycled at all need to be banned. And then um, what I think is really taking off now is conversations uh, among companies about uh, reusability. And many of the things that we use every day, many, many of the packages um, really could be something that were being returned to a depot. They were all similar in shape and 
design, you know, the branding for a particular company could just be a, a paper sticker on it that could be washed off each time. But the packaging themselves uh, would not be single use and then into the landfill. And uh, there's a lot of uh, entrepreneurship in this space that's really fascinating. And uh, I think what you'll see is, is more government involvement, more government leadership, especially at the federal level where there's a lot of interest. But some of the provinces are, are better on these issues. Ontario is terrible, but uh, Alberta has not been bad and BC has been pretty good. So I think that um, you know, you'll, you'll see some cooperation there too. Well, let's get on to prediction number 11, that there will be a cap on oil and gas uh, carbon emissions. Uh, the one I referred to, you know, the COP26 promise from the prime minister. Uh, I think there will be a cap, uh, but I don't think that it will be what's required. And it won't be what the prime minister promised. The uh, oil and gas industry has a massive lobbying presence in Ottawa, and it's been pulling out all the stops to do this. Uh, the oil sands, for example, has said if, if we they, if they don't start building carbon capture utilization and storage infrastructure almost immediately, they won't have it in place in time to meet 2030 uh, targets, and they won't they won't be able to meet any interim targets uh, either because the prime minister has promised annual targets, uh, annual reductions. Uh, this seems to this seems uh, the emissions oil and gas carbon emissions cap seems to me to be frankly a mess. Mm. You know, it's something that we need because nothing else has really worked. The exposure to the carbon price that the industry experiences is so low that it just doesn't change the behavior around emissions. So, um, you know, using the market mechanism, which, you know, a lot of people involved in, in carbon reduction, you know, are, are, are diehards for, you know, using uh, carbon pricing. Problem is, is that we end up designing the systems in such a way that the actual exposure is so low that, uh, that, that nobody is incentivized to change their behavior. Um, so that's where the, the cap comes in. And it'll be a real test to see whether uh, the federal government is serious about uh, driving down emissions in that sector. And uh, it also, of course, ties into the company's willingness to invest in that technology that they say is so great and that is so available and so workable uh, to actually do it, um, which of course then ties into them demanding that they don't really believe it's that great. And if we want it, then we should pay for it as the public. So it's going to, it's all tied together and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. But um, if it's going to work, the, the caps need to be real. They need to be declining over time. And the industry itself needs to invest in the technology to get there um, and not us paying for it. A little bit of context here. Uh, just last month, the federal government and the Alberta government uh, came to an agreement on toughening up the uh, carbon, the industrial emitters carbon tax. It's called TIER uh, in Alberta. Uh, the problem, of course, that you alluded to it is they get a discount and it's called output, ba output based uh, pricing system. And basically it gives the oil and gas industry and other industries, but in oil and gas, the, the discounts about 80 to 90%. So even if you toughen up on one side, the discount uh, dilutes that market signal to the companies on the other side, and you really haven't done much. Uh, all you've done is, uh, you know, you, you, you've made the appearance of being tough on, on emissions and the practical effect is nothing. So the fact that they've, they've already in late 2022 come to an agreement, concluded negotiations with the Alberta government, it means it's very unlikely that in the next year or two or three, they'll reopen negotiations to make it tougher yet. 
So I have absolutely no faith that carbon, the carbon tax will be the vehicle by which they put uh, used to uh, put the cap on oil and gas emissions, which only leaves because we remember that last February, they brought out a discussion paper on the oil and gas emissions cap, which only provided two options. One is cap and trade and the other was increasing the carbon tax. So now that leaves us with cap and trade. And my understanding of the discussions is we're nowhere on that. We're no further advanced than we were a year ago when the discussion paper came out. So you can understand while we need it, we all recognize it, that it's, I'm sorry to be cynical, but uh, the uh, the government's record in this on this file is not very, very positive. Yeah, I mean, there's been a, a history of commitments around mechanisms to reduce emissions that involve the oil sector, and then you know them launching the oil sector launching a full court press on the lobbying side and just you know running these things into the ground. So they never deliver very much. They're very good at that. I've been involved in some of the conversations over the years, and you know their capacity to hire very smart people to deliver pressure on endingly is 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 very uh, very good. Um, so that's kind of where it might get to, but uh, I agree with you that if we're going to have a system for emissions cap that works, that cap and trade is the one that we're going to need. Um, it's really the only kind of mechanism around uh, carbon pricing that actually guarantees you that you will achieve your emission reductions because you're issuing permits and you just pull them from the market and, and the emissions go down because there's you, the, the permits aren't available or the, the, the price escalates to such a level that it makes it worthwhile to reduce emissions. And I'd like to point out here that if there was ever a time for the oil and gas industry to invest its own capital in emissions reduction, the, tw the rest of this decade is it. And I, I point over and over again to a Wood McKenzie study that came out in 2021, I think, that said, look, Un, uh, chronic underinvestment in exploration and production since 2015-2016 has led to a sh supply shortages globally. That's going to elevate prices probably in the $80 to $100 a barrel range. And that means that oil and gas companies are going to be incredibly profitable for at least till 2030. Now, Wood McKenzie argues that oil and gas companies should use that windfall cash to invest in low carbon businesses and strengthen their balance sheets so that they're they can pivot to the energy transition and declining and declining demand which also means lowering emissions so what are the oil and canadian oil and gas companies doing well of course they're giving back all of that windfall profit in the form of higher dividends and share buybacks so this this you very unique time in history where we actually have an industry that needs to decarbonize and can afford to pay the bulk, if not all, of its own decarbonization, and we're letting them off the hook. And I have no, I, I absolutely believe that we will let them off the hook again in the 2020s because that's been our history. And I don't see the political will from the prime minister, from the the deputy prime minister Christopher Freeland, anywhere in cabinet, to stand up to the industry and make them do what they need to do. Yeah, I, mean, I hope you're wrong. I mean, I think industry is doing the share buybacks and the dividend increases because they don't actually believe in their own future. And they want to take these high oil prices, uh, the profits from those and, you know, take that cash and, and essentially run. Because they know that um, 
every time the price of oil is higher uh, in today's world, today's technological world, that that leads to more demand destruction, right? The higher the price gets, people can go somewhere else. This isn't 1973 with the, the oil crisis where people had nothing else to put in their vehicles or their homes. We now, uh, every time the prices go up or there's a crisis like we talked about in Europe, something else can fill that niche and it can be invested in and it can be scaled up. And that's a, a massive risk to the oil and gas industry over time. They know it. And I think they're planning to take as much cash from the system as they can. And if they can get governments to be stupid enough to give them like $50 billion to put in a bunch of machines that aren't going to work to try and store carbon in a way that is, is uh, yeah, kind of useless, then, then that's great. Um, why not? Why not take the cash? It's not yours. Uh, and you can give all of your uh, profits back to your shareholders. So uh, it's a bad deal for us. Um, and I think that they're just acting as rational actors in a market that's rapidly changing and taking the profits out from the investments that they've made. And if we're stupid enough to spend our cash on then they'll take it. Well, fair enough. And I suspect we are that stupid. Uh, history, would suggest, <laughs> history would suggest we're that stupid. I, I, uh, I agree that history would suggest it. Let's hope we can learn, learn from our mistakes. <laughs> oh, goodness. Would, if only that were, were the case. Well, let's wrap this up with prediction number 12, that Canada will finally get its new toxics and environmental justice laws. Now, Tim, I, I confess that this is not an issue that I've reported on. I'm not familiar with it. Why don't you give us a little background and explain your prediction? Sure. So the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, which is our kind of signature piece of federal legislation that crosses over uh, many areas of federal responsibility around protecting the environment. Um, it's about 20 years since the last time it was updated. And in particular, the uh, aspects around the regulation and control of toxic chemicals really need to be addressed. Um, and that is, you know, there's been so much change, so much new information from the science community around how some of these toxic chemicals impact our bodies. Um, you know, the traditional view of, well, you know, it's a bad chemical, but if you don't take too much of it, you know, you should be okay. That's kind of what we thought 25 years ago. But now we have things like, you know, BPA and these other hormone mimics, which even in microscopic quantities tell our bodies to do things because they're hormone mimics. They're, they're mimicking the natural chemicals in our body and they're very dangerous, even if they're present at all, just because of their nature. So there's a bunch of things like that that need to be addressed. And the encouraging thing in this is that we do have a bill. We have a pretty good bill that's going through, it started in the Senate, which I didn't even know was possible actually, but it started in the Senate last year, passed through the Senate. Now it's in the House. Uh, of course, the, the House is recessed for the holidays. It's coming back. Um, so I really do expect that it's gonna see some improvements and then we're gonna have uh, new, more up-to-date legislation. So that's great. And then the parallel bill is to uh, address uh, environmental uh, justice issues. So we know that there are many communities, many of them indigenous, where we thought, oh, well, there's a poor community. Let's build some kind of toxic waste dump near them. And uh, we have to clean these sites up. We have to have strategies around how to uh, make sure that this doesn't happen again in the future and to address some of the needs of the communities that are impacted. So this is going through the house as well. And uh, I really expect that to see uh, to see that come forward and get passed in, in the new year. So both of them are really important. And uh, I think that we, we, we can see uh, some real possibility for success there pretty early on in 2023. Well, Tim, thank you very much for this. I really appreciate We've covered a, you know, a lot of ground here. And if I could sum this up, it's, it's 
I often hear from, from the oil and gas folks that the energy transition is going to be bumpy instead of smooth. There has never been a smooth energy transition in the history of energy transitions. They're always bumpy. That's just the nature of change. And here, what we're doing, the, the global energy system is massive. Oil alone, that we consume 100 million barrels a day, you know, and never. And then there's natural gas and electricity on top of that and on and on and on. Changing that system is not going to be easy. What I so I, I expect uh, that at a, the global level, it's going to go in fits and starts. We're going to have crises on a regular basis. We're, it's going to take us a while to get this right and to switch switch over to clean energy. Mm-hmm. What I worry about in Canada is it'll be bumpier here than it needs to be. It'll be bumpier here than it will be in other countries because we're just unprepared. They, the conversations that are taking place about this transition, about the economic transformation, it's a very small group and it meets behind closed doors. And it doesn't, it doesn't happen at a public level. We're not creating the political space with that conversation that, that is required to put in place the policy at the federal level and the provincial level to do what needs to be done. Your take on that. I, I totally agree. Uh, I mean, I think we end up having, you know, political fights led by, you know, various political parties that are kind of surrogates for this, um, rather than like bringing folks into the real conversations that are necessary to make sure that this transition actually benefits Canadians and protects their long-term interests. You know, we have a, a huge uh, risk of being left behind, right? Um, you know, it, the energy transition, if we're going to survive as a civilization at a global scale, is going to occur, and it's going to have to occur very quickly because we're behind the eight ball on this issue. Um, my real concern for Canada is that um, the rest of the world is just going to be smarter in this space than we are. And then we're going to left behind still arguing about whether or not we should be increasing fossil fuel outputs while the rest of the world is busy making air source heat pumps, installing, installing renewable energy and smart grids and driving electric vehicles. While we jump up and down and talk about like having the freedom to buy a you know, gigantic gas guzzling SUV and keep pumping more oil with public subsidies. Like it's a, it's a stupid conversation to be having at a time when the rest of the world, whether it's democracies or dictatorships, are mostly headed in the opposite direction if they have any options at their disposal at all. And Canada has huge options, big, rich country, lowly populated, huge amounts of resources. We're not Saudi Arabia where the only thing we produce is oil. There's lots of other stuff we can do here, but we pretend as if sometimes I feel like we pretend as though, you know, fossil fuels are like 80% of our economy when they're instead 10. And uh, we really need to get over that and have an adult conversation uh, engage everyone in talking about the future we need to create. Well, if there is a 13th prediction, Tim, that would be it, I think, is that we have the adult conversation that we have avoided and that we ask our federal and provincial politicians and the governments to engage in that adult conversation. I'm not optimistic, but hopefully, I mean, we know what we need. Hopefully, we'll make some progress on that in 2023. Thank you very much for this and a happy new year to you and your organization. Thanks so much. Happy new year to you as well.